Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, we're continuing a short series of podcasts about the mass violence in Indonesia starting in 1965. Last month, I talked to Jeffrey Robinson about his book, The Killing Season. In the next couple of months, I'll talk with Vanessa Heerman about her upcoming book, Unmarked Graves, and also with Jess Melvin. But today, I'm thrilled to welcome Jess, as well as Kate McGregor and Annie Pullman, to the show. The three have edited a compelling new collection of essays on the violence of 1965 and afterwards, titled The Indonesian Genocide of 1965, Causes, Dynamics, and Legacies. The book is a fascinating collection, one that engages in careful historical analysis while while remaining fully aware of its place in contemporary debates. It's an invaluable contribution to the efforts to understand and remember the violence. Annie, Kate, and Jess, welcome. I'm looking forward to our discussion, and thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Thanks very um, much. Um, so, Annie, you've been on the show before. Kate and Jess, you haven't. I wonder if each in turn could just say briefly something about how you came to be an academic and, and how you came to be interested in the violence in Indonesia and, and in Indonesian society in general. Okay, I'll start. Um uh, this is Annie, and I fell into this topic quite by accident, really. Um, I was studying in Indonesia as part of my undergraduate degree, and quite by chance I met a survivor of this period uh, and got to know a little bit about this history that was really not well known at all at the time, and so that's how I got into it. Uh, this is Kate here. So I got into the topic of, of the 1965 violence originally by studying the Indonesian military and I was looking at their myth-making and the central part of their myth-making is kind of the justification for the violence of 1965. So that was kind of the second topic that I started to get into, which is so crucial to military legitimacy in Indonesia. Hi, Kelly. Um, thanks for having us on. Um I guess I became interested in the topic. I was in Aceh um, just after the tsunami. I saw the end of the the war there and I was looking at the military and the way it was operating and I wanted to know, I'd heard about 1965 and I was interested to know what had happened then and I was very shocked when I realised we didn't actually know very much. I've been (laughs) looking at it since then. I've been doing this podcast I think for five years now and and to the extent that I, I I look at Indonesia, it says from the perspective of somebody from the genocide studies community. And in, from that perspective, I'm not sure I could have put together a series like this a decade ago. Or, or maybe better said, people without an Indonesia might not have recognized the emergence of interest in the topic a decade ago. So, so Kate, and I'll start with you. I, I wonder if you could start out by by talking about why and how Academics in particular at this point will hold off about um, Indonesian 
uh, memory for a little bit, but but broadly speaking, about how academics have become interested in the history and and how broad this interest is. Uh, in the history of the violence, you mean? Um, well, I guess uh, one important thing to say is that since 1998, with the fall of Suharto, the regime that kind of uh, began this violence and was built upon kind of the legitimacy of the violence, when that regime fell, it became a little bit easier. I wouldn't say easy at all, but a little bit easier to open this topic. And also people affected by the violence were able to speak a little bit more openly about what had happened to them. So this opened the possibility for researchers also to do more research on the topic in terms of perhaps oral history, but also Indonesians themselves were addressing this past more openly. So that, that opening is an important part of the story. But I think also the fall of that regime in encouraged to rethink about what that regime had been, its basis of legitimacy, and people really started to question with the democratisation of Indonesia, the kind of stories they'd been told in official history textbooks, etc. And um, the media was able to more openly discuss different versions of history. So I guess all that climate produced more curiosity. But I must say, like, within Indonesia, again, this process has been quite slow in academic circles. And for that reason, you know, we're particularly, um, you know, encouraged and excited by a new generation of Indonesian scholars who are starting to look at this history, um, like some of the contributors to our book, like Abdul Wahid. And I guess outside Indonesia as well, it's also opened up, opened up possibilities for um, re- non-Indonesian researchers to examine this topic um, and to question many things that we thought we understood about Indonesia. As Jess said, there are still many things we still need to know about the violence itself. So Jess, and I'll, I'll move to you. So, so why this book, the one we're talking about, Indonesia Genocide of 1965? How, how did this book come about, and and how do you see this book fitting into this kind of, uh, uh, I don't know if it's emerging record of scholarship or established record? Of, where does this book fit? Well, we had a conference in um, in Geelong to mark it was the Indonesian um, Council. Uh, conference and we were marking 50 years since the the genocide and um, we had a, a wide range of speakers talking about what was happening and it was becoming um, increasingly clear that there was a whole new raft of um, research coming out and it was a, a chance to put it all together into a new volume. It was a response in a way to um, some of the earlier books and to say, well, this is how far we've now come. And and what do you think, and this may be Jess or maybe somebody else, so so what what about the book that you've, and the set of essays that you've collected here, how does that help um, fill previous gaps or f- begin to fill in previous gaps in the scholarship? What, what, what does this book do that's new? Oh, okay, I'll take that one. Um, I, I think... Really, this book does, uh, it tries to do a few things, really. One, it's about highlighting and showcasing some of this new generation of scholarship that's going on in Indonesia uh, by Indonesian scholars, but also by um, scholars from outside Indonesia that is really building on that this last 20 years of a slightly easier way of doing this research. Uh, because a lot of the earliest scholarship really has to be understood that it happened in a time when it was not possible to do the sort of interviews that we can do now. 
So it was not possible to go and interview survivors about their experiences, let alone perpetrators about what they'd done. And a lot of the perpetrator research is still very, very difficult to do, as is the survivor research. And so it's the last 20 years that it's only really been possible to do this. So in some ways, we are definitely building on some of that earlier research that asked some of those really important questions about the basic facts of what happened, you know, how many people died, how was it carried out? And because of the difficulties of uncovering this information, there were so many gaps. I mean, we're starting to fill in those gaps now, but there really were so many unanswered questions. And so with this book, what we're trying to do is, I mean, it was an appropriate moment at that 2015 conference to mark the anniversary of 50 years since the start of the killings, to do that pausing and thinking about what do we know now that we didn't know 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And so with this book, we're trying to reposition where our knowledge is really of the killings and what happened and who was responsible and Jess's work has been particularly important to answer that question. Uh, And so we tried to frame the book in this way to say these are the things that we know. We tried to divide it along sort of two parts, the first part being the causes and dynamics, as the title suggests, (laughs) and then the second part really being about those long-term and very present legacies of these killings on Indonesian society, which are felt by survivors and their families, but Indonesian society more generally through to today. And so in doing this sort of marking where we're at in terms of knowledge, we also wanted to reposition the field of 1965 studies much more solidly within the discourse of comparative genocide studies because it really does belong there. Uh, Even though the Indonesian killings have been sort of on the periphery of genocide studies for a very long time, they really need to be considered much more comparatively because there are so many strong correlations between how it was incited, how it was carried out, what sort of violence affected victims and in what ways. There are so many parallels with other cases from the 20th century uh, and today that they need to be taken much more seriously in terms of that wider discourse of comparative genocide studies. I'd like to follow up on that if I could, Jess. Um, When I interviewed Jeff Robinson, we talked about his book, and he was very intentional about explaining why he chose not to talk about genocide in the title. Uh, The three of you have... Um, been very careful to label it a genocide, and you have a, an, an entire chapter in the book explaining why you think that's important. So could you explain why you made that decision and what you think the stakes are? Sure. Um, yes, it, it was very much a conscious decision. If if you look back um, to the time when the new order just fell, so during the Reformasi period, there was a push within Indonesia itself for the killings to be labelled as genocide. Um, so For example, the Indonesian Human Rights Commission, um, when it began its investigation into the violence of 1965, um, it was tasked with investigating whether it was possible to find evidence that genocide and crimes against humanity had occurred. So there is that push from within Indonesia. But if you also look at 
the field of comparative genocide studies, which emerged in the late 1980s and early 1990s, um, the comparative genocide scholars were very interested, including the Indonesian case um, within uh, what they were looking at. And if you look at some of the very early um, uh, comparative studies that they produced, the Indonesian case is in there amongst the others. And the question for the, in the comparative genocide scholars was not the question that is often asked today. It's not the question of how do you classify um, the, the identity of the target group that was um, killed in 1965. Um, the question was whether or not it was possible to prove uh, military intent behind what, what occurred. Um, at that time, we didn't have access to the internal um, orders uh, and communications of the military, which we now have access to, which are able to, to prove that there were um, clear orders that went out um, to uh, start the killings and that the, the military uh, described this uh, campaign as an annihilation operation and it was specifically intended to uh, destroy um, the military's uh, target group its uh, public announcements, which we're not able to, to show that. So really we're able to return to the question that um, genocide scholars were asking in the early um, early 1990s and to answer that, that the evidence is now available um, and we can return to that question of why we think um, the 1965 killings can be understood as a case of genocide. And for the listeners, uh, I'll just say briefly that Jess uh, has written an entire book on this question. Um, and that she and I will be talking later this summer. And so be on the lookout in your podcast feed for, for that interview, which deals with that question more specifically. Annie, your essay was on, and, and some of your previous work focuses on the extent and nature of sexual violence during the period. So can you say a little bit about what we know about um, the extent and the role of sexual violence uh, in, during this period? Uh, thanks for that, Kelly. Yes. Um, in terms of what we know now, so really uh, stories by, okay, so sexual and gender-based violence, it, I mean, of course it happens to men and women, but I think it's fair to say that in the Indonesian case the patterns of this violence are fairly predominantly affecting women and girls. Again, when the regime fell in 1998, this was really the first opportunity that survivors had to start telling their stories in difficult circumstances, certainly. Uh, but there has been a very strong voice of women survivors and particular survivor networks and advocate groups who support survivors have really tried to place an emphasis on women's stories and women's um, narratives in how we reconstruct this history of 1965 because, unfortunately, as, as is the case in most genocides around the world and most mass atrocity crimes, there are particular forms of sexual and gendered violence which predominantly affect women and girls and certainly that was the case in 1965 as well. Some of the patterns that are very uh, clear uh, that women who were who were or who were thought to be members or supporters of the Indonesian Communist Party were targeted 
with different forms of sexual violence. They were targeted uh, in particularly gruesome ways during the killings and the massacres. And here I'm talking about very uh, crucial bodily performance type violence uh, conducted against women and girls, attacking women as women. And you see some trends for that for attacking men as men. So you do see particular forms of uh, mutilation and violence against the parts of your body that make men men and women women. Uh, But in terms of some of the longest-term violence forms affecting women and girls, there were uh, lots of clear cases of women being tortured in particular ways that were very sexualised, women while they were being kept in these uh, concentration camps being enslaved sexually and there were cases, for example, of enforced prostitution as well whereby the male guards who were running some of these camps would then rent out women who were held within them to other men uh, for sex and then they would receive money or other goods in exchange for that. But also another thing that really happened was that, I mean, the majority of victims killed and imprisoned were men, right? So most of the people who died and who were imprisoned were men. And when they were taken away, either through death or imprisonment, their female relatives didn't escape other forms of persecution. So you have this phenomenon which the first time I heard it was described to me as wife-taking which was where women whose husbands had been killed or detained were forced into new sexual relationships, often with men who had done the killings and rounding up of communists. Uh, And they really didn't have much choice about entering into these new new sexual relations, whether they were short-term or long-term. And for many women whose husbands were killed during these massacres, they were forced into new marriages, um, whether they could bring children from their first marriage or not, that was often very difficult to negotiate, um, and lived out the rest of their lives in these forced sexual relationships. Uh, And really so those long-term consequences for women uh, who were left after the massacres have not really been revealed as much as they need to be. So that's one area of research that really needs to happen while there are still people alive uh, to give testimony about this. So, Kate, the first section of the book is mostly about the events of 1965 and 66 and, 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 and the immediate effects of them. We don't have time to go through each essay, but I wonder if you might share one or two takeaways or or things that you learned from these essays that you thought were particularly interesting or important to you? Uh, so maybe I'll just comment on Abdul Wahid's chapter in the first section, which is on uh, violence within the Indonesian university system, which I think is a very revealing chapter in terms of thinking more broadly about how the violence affected institutions, the level and extent to which it penetrated so many different levels of society. So we're really salute Abdul Wahid for doing this very brave research as a a person located in that university. And he, you know, talks really interesting ways about 
the sense in which this university was considered by Sakano to be a revolutionary university, so it was very much caught up in the politics before 1965. Um, but then as, uh, you know, the Suharto regime took hold, there were very thorough kind of purges of university staff. So for us, this was this is also an important kind of new direction in research, just capturing one other dimension, one other way in which the violence uh, widely affected Indigenous society. And kind of a pair chapter with that is Vanessa Herman's chapter, which looks at the churches and the impact of the violence uh, um, through the lens of the church and also people's decisions about what religious choices they made after the violence and contacts between churches and um, people in prison. But Jess can probably say more about some of the other chapters in section one because I worked a lot on the legacies chapters actually. Yes, if I can just jump in there. Um, one thing to add, um, one of the, the great gems of the book is a, a chapter by Roro Sawita and she's done some amazing um, interviews with people who lived through this period and it gives us a real sense of, of what it was like in Indonesia at that time. She looks in particular at the... Um, the land reform program that was happening in Bali and the period where the violence began and the very clear role that the mil military played in that violence. So that's I think, something that the, the book is able to, to share. Yeah, the, all of the essays are good. Um, we, we should probably turn to that second section. As Kate, you said you, you had a prominent role in that section. Kate, so, so I wonder if you could say, Kate, just a little bit about how the violence was remembered during what is labeled the new order regime uh, okay well um during the new order regime um it was very difficult to speak openly about the violence so um you know the military as i've written in my first book the military uh and the military propagandist Nogrohonotasasanta were very important in producing kind of um, their version of events of 1965, which concentrated on the 30 September movement and not on the violence that occurred after that. So throughout the whole regime, one day was celebrated, Harikasaktian Panchasila, which means sacred Panchasila day. And on that day, the deaths of the people killed on 30 September were commemorated, but there was, you know, almost silence about the, the people killed after that in the mass campaigns of violence, genocide between 1965 and 1968. So that kind of characterises how the regime promoted its story about 1965 and that was replicated in the propaganda film which was screened on the 30th September, 1st of October every year, um, also in military museums, military textbooks. So uh, that was kind of the state version of history and because it was an authoritarian regime, it was difficult to challenge it. So you kind of had like one narrative about those events promoted from the top. It was not that other people in society didn't have their own private memories about what had happened, but it was difficult for them. For example, former political prisoners, almost very few were able to publish memoirs during that period about their experiences of violence and that changed after 1998. So, Annie, you write in this volume... Um, about the efforts to define and achieve justice in the aftermath of the New Order regime after after Suharto had, had left and, and the attempt to transition to something like democracy had, had begun. Um, so can you say something about how justice was envisioned and, and some of the roadblocks it has faced? Yes. Well, unfortunately, in that immediate post-1998 period, there were some genuine efforts on the part of the state, I think, to maybe start opening up 
some so 1965 is unfortunately part of a continuum of state-sponsored mass atrocity crimes that happened throughout that period over the 33 years of the new order. But 1965 is really the Pandora's box and it's the one that uh, it's the case that gets, uh, it's seen as the key to opening up the pass to the military's various acts of um, atrocities. And so in that immediate 1998, post-1998 period, there were some genuine efforts, there were some very significant law reforms and new legislation and efforts to set up a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But as um, Srila Sariya Waringram talks about in her chapter as well, there was a derailment of those transitional justice mechanisms uh, that were very necessary for Indonesia to transform into a liberal democracy. And unfortunately, Really, since the early 2000s, nothing has happened in this space. So there were efforts to set up a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, completely sidelined. The commission itself was even thrown out by the courts and we go a little bit further into that in the chapter that I do with Nukula Avanti. And there were parts of the new legislation set up to be able to hold these things called human rights courts that were supposed to bring perpetrators of serious crimes, um, serious international crimes, to some form of legal justice. And there were two courts, not for 1965, but for perpetrators, alleged perpetrators who've done things in East Timor and also in another incident called the Tanjung Priok incident. Unfortunately, both of those courts were complete farces and really that set the tone from the early 2000s onwards in Indonesia for how the state was going to not deal with these very dark periods in their past and unfortunately Indonesia while it is a democracy it is a very low quality democracy and all of those liberal democracy underpinnings that are supposed to be there uh, have really been eroded significantly over time. And so now Indonesia is very quickly backstepping on the types of reforms and basic civil liberties that would be necessary for there to ever be any kind of real, uh, frank and just look at these um, atrocities in the past. So really the chance of there being any kind of legal mechanism for justice is very unlikely at this point. Certainly it's highly unlikely to happen within the lifetimes of the people who survived, let alone those who perpetrated these killings. Most of those who would have had um, command responsibility roles in 1965 have all passed away now. So really we've lost those avenues for any kind of legal mechanisms. But that doesn't mean there shouldn't be a concerted effort by the state to open up a full and frank Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But I really can't see that happening. Annie, you talk about this from the state level. Kate, you talk about memory in some sense on an individual level. So I wonder if you you, you have this fascinating chapter about uh, an artistic 
uh, exhibit, I guess is the right word, called Heads from the North. I wonder if you could talk about that exhibit and the artist who created it. Uh, just, yeah, I think on the question of memory, one thing that has fascinated me is kind of the relationship between the living and the dead, because I wrote a previous chapter on mass graves and thinking about Dadan Cristianto's story as a person who lost his father and never knew where his father's remains were. It, it raises that, that issue that Annie mentioned earlier about how this um, history continues to inform people's lives today. I mean, even if the generation who were killed um, at that time are definitely, of course, gone, then it still continues to reverberate in the present for the children who survived or grandchildren who survived. And another way that it, this is exacerbated is also by the social stigma that was attached to people who either had family members imprisoned or killed. And that's kind of the story that I tell a little bit about for Dadan Cristianto, who lost his father and was also stigmatised um, as Anapegei, the child of a Communist Party member, is kind of the, the label that was applied to these people. So I think through individual stories and um, testimonies, which you know Jess and Annie also use in their work, we really get kind of the human story of the absolute trauma and grief that you know um, was the result of living through this violence. So. Um, yeah, in that chapter, I just also wanted to bring out the fact that these memories are not, and people, of course, are not just contained to Indonesia, but um, this memorial at the National Gallery of Australia, which is um, quite fascinating, heads for the north, is present in the sculpture garden there. And so Dadang was commissioned to create that memorial. And it is the only memorial in the world to commemorate all the victims of 1965. There is no memorial in Indonesia because it is not possible to have a memorial to all victims in Indonesia. There are small markings of mass graves, but it's not possible to make something big and um, significant in terms of because there is so much resistance also in Indonesian society to opening this past. So I know that our time is short, um, and I have to say just to the listeners, there's there's so much in this book that is really interesting. I, I would love to get into the chapter about puppet theaters. We don't have time, but but go out and get the book and, and read it. It's fascinating. Um, as kind of we conclude, um, and I'll, I guess I'll throw this to Jess first, but I'd love to hear what you all say. Uh, wh- where... Where are we now? Um, what gaps need to be filled in the research? And, and, and what role does academic research play in this continued effort to wrestle with the past? We sort of, the, the question can be answered in two ways, I guess. Um, for historians and people researching um, 1965, this is an incredibly exciting time. There's so much new information and the ability now to really um periodize what happened and talk about distinct phases and dates and um, times and places in a way that we haven't been able to do before because we have been dealing primarily with um, people's recollections um, about what happened. And we can now have a very detailed chronology of what happened and put um, that testimony alongside um, the military's own records and this other new information that's coming out. There's um, also um uh, telegrams that the Americans produced during the time of the genocide, which we can also use to do this. So it's a very exciting time. We can start really, I think, writing the history of what happened in 1965 now. But unfortunately, it's it's not such a positive um, uh, situation in Indonesia. In fact, um, 
Indonesia has just commemorated 20 years since Reformasi. And of course, it's been a time when people have been asking, well, what is um, the, stat the status of uh, attempts to look into this past, as Annie has been speaking about. Um, but Jokowi, the president, has <laughs> just come out and um, suggested that, again, there will not be this proper investigation. The Attorney General has once again uh, reasserted his refusal to accept the report by Komnas Ham, the Indonesian um, Human Rights Commission, that will not be accepted. Um, it's for political reasons, of course, that this report is not being accepted. Um, and we are looking at a situation in Indonesia where if we do not have a commitment um, that this investigation will occur, um, that that chance at the official level is, is slipping away at the moment. Um, the desire to look into this past is, is disappearing at an official level. So it will be important for researchers on the ground and activists to, to take up that message and make sure that we do call um, for uh, this investigation to occur. I'm, I'm curious. So, so at least a couple of you, and I think all three of you have done interviews with survivors or participants, um, just talked about the, the limitations of the state's effort to remember. And I guess Annie did a little bit earlier as well. Is it still possible to go in and talk to, to vi victims and bystanders? And I'm using this tired old triptych, I guess, but bystanders, perpetrators, victims, is that still, those kind of sources still open to you? Absolutely. And this is the thing, right? Although there is a taboo about speaking about 1965, anybody who lived through that period has an experience. They're able to tell you about what happened. And if you go and speak with people in Indonesia and if you get through the first few formal discussions about, you know, oh, no, I don't know what happened in 1965, <laughs> of course they know. It affected them and in many ways. Um, they were involved in what happened. Maybe a family member was killed. Maybe they were coerced into participating in the killings. And this is one of the most tragic aspects of 1965. The population has been made to take the blame for what the state is actually responsible for, one of the greatest mass killings of the 20th century. Well, I know you have to go, so I wonder if you could um, just give me each a very quick book recommendation. I'm headed off to Europe with my family, which means a 12-hour plane ride. What should I read on the plane? What was meaningful to you about this that you would suggest other people read or, or watch? Well, um, I have to say it's an old book, uh, but a good one, uh, a book that I read when I need to think about these issues of mass killings and people surviving. To be honest, uh, when I need inspiration, I go back to Terence Dupre's The Survivor because there's no clearer voice on what it is to be a survivor for me. I think it's a it's a book that I go back to again and again. And for me, I would probably recommend uh, Leila Chidori's book, Home, which uh, she's a literary writer in Indonesia and um, she's writing about really about this issue of intergenerational memory through a personal story about an exile and his daughter and how she discovers her father's history. So it's kind of another personal fictionalised account but based on interviews with survivors. I guess... Um one of the books that I found really useful when I was doing research and trying to understand the way that a state is able to carry out this sort of a campaign was um, Hannah Arendt's Eichmann in Jerusalem. It's a classic book, but the way she talks about 
the bureaucracy of murder and the way that an entire state is able to be mobilised to carry out a killing campaign in a way it might otherwise carry out, you know, an irrigation campaign <laughs> was something that I found very useful and touching. Well, I'm not sure what the people in the seat next to me will say if they see me reading this books on the plane, but um, but I think those are all great suggestions and I will take them up. So I want to say thank you so much and I appreciate your time. Um, and I know that you all are continuing to research. And Jess, I know that means we'll talk soon. And Kate and Annie, I hope that you'll be on the show sometime down the line with um, more to tell us about what happened in Indonesia in 1965. So thanks for joining us. Thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you.